Today we wrap up this series brand new, and I have loved this content because it's given me an opportunity to take some things that we've talked about randomly and sort of cram them all into a series and help us to begin think differently about Christianity and the Christian life. And specifically, if you've not been here, you are coming in on the tail end of the movie, and the best thing you could do is go to brandnewseries.org. You can see the first four parts, watch this fifth part. It'll be up there forever. If you're in a small group, you can download PDF and, and have a discussion on the response to the series has been extreme on both ends. There are people who loved it and the haters are gonna hate, 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 hate. But did you know Jesus said in Matthew 10 to shake it off? That's right, to shake it off, shake it off. Oh, you didn't do your part. Shake it off, shake it off. Yeah, okay, all right, all right, anyway. To make sure you're awake. So here's the deal. And if you're new and, and you don't know who we are, I am, it doesn't really matter. But here's the deal. I love the local church. So many of you love the local church. Most of us or many of us were raised in the local church. And I love our church. I love our churches. I love the church. And I can understand why people push back against the church. I can understand why people push back on Christianity. I get why people will push back on Jesus. The thing that breaks my heart and, and, and breaks our heart is when people resist Jesus and resist the church for reasons that shouldn't even be reasons to resist. Jesus and resist the church. I mean, if you want to resist Christianity, there's really just one really good reason, and that's because you just don't believe Jesus is the Son of God. I mean, that's, that's a valid point, and we can talk about that. But for so many of us, our bad church experience was not theological, and for many of you who aren't in church, the reason you're you know, disconnected and have a bad attitude maybe toward Christians is stuff that really isn't even germane to the church or to Jesus. In fact, many of you, if, if we were honest, have resisted the, the things that many of you have resisted about church are things the church should have actually resisted. Because when Jesus showed up, he introduced something brand new, brand new. It was a total departure. It was a stark contrast from ancient religion and a stark contrast from much of what is called religion today. We've talked about this thing I've created called the temple model. The temple model represented everything in religion from ancient um, Egyptian religion all the way through Greek religion, Roman religion, ancient um, Judaism, and much of religion today. In the temple model, there's always sacred places. There are always sacred men, always men. There are always sacred texts. And then there's always the followers, the sincere followers, the superstitious followers, the scared followers. And the sacred men interpret the sacred text and tell everybody how to live and tell everybody here's what it really means and here's what you need to do. And they become powerful over time. And if that sounds like, hey, that's not ancient. That's like the church I grew up in. I know, that's why we're doing this series. Because when Jesus showed up, when Jesus showed up, he said, I have come to introduce not something simply to the Jewish people. I've come to introduce something to the world that is brand new. There's gonna be a brand new arrangement between God and man. He said, I'm initiating a new covenant, a new arrangement between God and man. He said, I'm gonna give you a new command that's gonna supersede all the commands. And when you're wondering what you do, you just refer back to this one command. The Jews you know, had 600 plus laws. We grew up with the 10 commandments. Every temple system, every religious system has a bunch of rules and regulations. Jesus says, in my movement, in my movement, there are a lot of applications but there's really just one command. And this one command is gonna be an ethic. And this is this one giant broad ethic is gonna be the filter through which you make every single decision. And it's gonna be much simpler than what you've experienced in the past. And he began a brand new movement that unfortunately has been titled church. The word church comes from a German word that means house of the Lord. But Jesus did not come to establish a place 
He came to establish a people. He came to establish a movement. The little word, Greek word, ekklesia, that's translated church in your English Bibles should have been translated assembly or congregation or gathering because Jesus gathered people around a very simple idea, around a very personal claim, and the church was born. And what we've discovered and what we're gonna continue to discover as we go forward as a group of churches is that the Jesus model is far less complicated. There's far less to remember. You don't have to go to a sacred place. You don't have to kill anything. Nothing has to die. All the blood that needs to be shed has already been shed. In fact, it's so less complicated, Jesus would say, and the New Testament teaches, that you will never go to a sacred spot that is more sacred than the person with you. That from this point forward, Jesus said, the sacred places are over because now you're sacred and you're sacred and you're sacred and you're sacred because you're made in the image of God. And that holy spirit that inhabited a holy temple has now come to inhabit people. And so the Jesus model is far less complicated, but as we said last week, it is far, far more demanding. It's far more demanding because in religion and in the temple system, there's always a place to hide. Every religious system has loopholes. Every religious system has um, workarounds. Every religious system consequently is full of hypocrisy. But it's almost impossible, it's almost impossible to hide from this, as Jesus told his followers late in his ministry. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Wait a minute, go slow, what? Let me say it again, it's complicated, I know, you don't even, it's a three by five card, okay? As I have loved you, hey, well, I, got, I got this, so you must love one another. Well, I'm not sure what we should do, this is so complicated. As I have loved you, you are to love one another. You see, here's the deal, and here's why we dodge it, and here's why it's easier to embrace the temple model, model approach to religion. When it comes to the type of love that Jesus taught and modeled, there is no place to hide. There are no loopholes. There are no workarounds. There are no shortcuts with love. When it comes to the Jesus model, all of us, all of us almost always know the answer to this question. What does love require of me? What does love require of me? I'm not a New Testament scholar. I'm not an Old Testament scholar. I haven't read through the whole Bible. That's fine. What does love require of you? Because this was the single command. This was the single ethic. This was to be the driving force. And as Jesus taught, I don't know how we've missed it. He was so clear. As the apostle Paul would follow up years later and say, this single command, this single idea is the one thing that is to serve as the filter for everything else. The Old Testament and the the New Testament is simply commentary. The Old Testament and the New Testament is simply application of this one idea. What does love require of me? And the local church, the early church began so well. And I think one of the reasons it began so well is they had nothing to go on other than two things. A resurrected Messiah, so they did not fear death. And this one simple idea that we are to do for others what Jesus did for us. We are to do for others what Jesus did for us. I don't need a Bible. I don't need a Bible study. I don't need to know Greek and Hebrew. I know what Jesus did for me. What is the best way to do for others what Jesus has done for me? And the first century Christians did not fear death. 
And the first century Christians loved one another. And then, this is what astounded the pagan world. The first century Christians loved the pagans. The idea of loving someone who could not do anything for you was unheard of. There was not even a, there was not even a word to describe that kind of love. And these crazy Christians, they loved people that could not do anything for them in return. And over time, it gained traction. And over time, there were more and more. And suddenly, people were leaving paganism to attach themselves to a Jewish carpenter. And there wasn't even a New Testament. There was a letter here, and there was a letter there, and there was a story here, and there was a story there. And that's all they needed. And then in the fourth century, Christianity who was led by a savior, who was crucified by Rome, became the, became the primary religion, the legal religion of Rome. And everything changed. And Christianity went from being a persecuted minority, Christians went from being a persecuted minority to an empowered majority. And when Christians went from being a persecuted minority to an empowered uh, 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 majority, things changed, things changed. And unfortunately, they began to exercise temple brand authority. And without ever meaning to, it's no one's fault, it's just a twist in history. They took the temple model and they crammed Christian teaching into it. And before long, the Jesus movement that was about the simplicity of a resurrected savior and the simplicity of love one another began to take the form and the shape of the temple. There would be sacred places. You visit some of those in Europe now. There would be sacred people, and then there would be a hierarchy of sacred people, and they would gather the sacred text, and they would copy the sacred text. Much of this we, you know, was, a, was a huge advantage for Christians in the first, second, and third, and fourth, and ongoing centuries. But ultimately, ultimately, there developed a temple version of the Jesus movement. In the 16th century, we experienced the Reformation. In the Reformation, once again, Christianity took some huge steps forward. In the Reformation, we were introduced to this, this phrase, um, sola scriptura, which means scripture alone, scripture alone. The reformers said, hey, the authority of the church is no longer the authority. We reject the authority of the corrupted church. We embrace the authority of scripture, that scripture, not the church, will be the ultimate authority for the church from this point forward. But there was a challenge once again. And the challenge was this, you were beginning to hand uneducated people the Old and the New Testament together. And they're saying this is the inspired word of God. And without any finesse and without any explanation, suddenly it was all equally inspired and it was assumed to be all equally applicable. But people began to study the scriptures and realize there are contradictions, not in the historicity of the scriptures, but there's contradictions in the, in the, um, the application of scripture. It's all authority. Uh, all, uh, it's all equally inspired. It can't possibly be all equally applicable. If it was all equally applicable, my parents would have stoned me when I was 14 years old because that's what the Old Testament teaches. And so suddenly, nobody's fault, nobody intended for this to happen. The ethic of love, the ethic of love that was to drive all the application, the ethic of love that was supposed to inform the Old Testament and inform the New Testament got lost. And without anyone ever meaning for this to happen, in Protestant Christianity, the Bible became a bat. And people began to pick and to choose the texts that were most important to them. And it says this, and it says this, and you need to do this, and you need to do that. And suddenly, all of the authoritative scripture took on all the same implications in terms of 
all of it being applicable to everyone at all times. And the reason there are so many Protestant denominations, it's not because they couldn't agree on how to love. There are so many Protestant denominations because they could not agree on how to interpret the text. And once again, the temple model crept into the Jesus movement. And as a result, love lost. I want us to change that. And I believe that we can. And I believe that even if we can't, we should try. Because it's simple and it's demanding. It's simple and it's demanding. It's simple and it's demanding. And it makes the gospel almost irresistible. That's how the church got traction in the first century. Perhaps, once again, that's how the church will gain traction in this century. So as we wrap up today, I want to, with my remaining time as quickly as I can, I wanna take five ideas, five ideas that have been diluted and maybe polluted is too strong of a term, but have been diluted and been confused as it relates to Christianity and religion and the temple model. Five concepts that aren't new to any of us, but five concepts because the Old Testament and the New Testament and the temple model all merge together, there's confusion around these five things. Five things that if we were to get this right, If we were to begin to, as I said early on in this series, if we would begin to renew our minds and specifically renew our consciences to what Jesus taught around these five ideas, it would change our communities, it would change our cities, it would change our world, because perhaps, again, Christianity would become as irresistible as it was when Christianity was a minority religion with no power and no authority and nothing other than a risen savior in this powerful, powerful ethic that says, I haven't read the whole Bible, I don't know everything there is to know, but I know how to treat you like my heavenly father through Jesus treated me. So here they are, real quick. The first one is structure. The church is a body, it is not a kingdom. The church is a body, it is not a kingdom. When Jesus was being tried by Pilate, Pilate asked him about this and Jesus said, I got some good news for you, Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, you would be the one being crucified. Okay, he didn't say that part. But he said that my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, the the people of my kingdom would come and protect me. The apostle Paul taught about the kingdom of God, but everywhere he went, he planted churches. And he said to those churches, you're not a kingdom, you're a body, you are representatives of Jesus, so work together to represent Jesus. The king ain't here. In the meantime, we are his, he used the word ambassadors. Here's what he said, we've looked at this before. He said, now you are the body of Christ, and each one, let's say this together, each one, again, each one is a part of it. Here's what he meant, that each of us has been gifted by God to play a specific role in the church, which means if you aren't engaged, something is missing, and if you aren't engaged, you are missing something. If you aren't engaged, the body is missing something, and if you aren't engaged, you're missing something. In the temple model, in the temple model, the religious experience of gathering is all about consume. You show up to be baptized, so God will bless you. You show up to take communion, so God will be happy with you. You show up to learn, so you can be a better person. But the Jesus model isn't about consumption because the Jesus model isn't about you. Remember last week? It's about the you beside you. So the Jesus model is about engage, 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 because you are a member of the body of 
Christ. It's the temple model that left us with this thought, oh, I can just stay at home and worship God alone. That is temple model thinking. The Jesus model is, why would I stay home and worship God alone when I can engage with the rest of the body and change my community and change the world? Why would I cheat myself? Why would I cheat the body? Do you know what you are if you're not engaged with your local church and you're just an attender? You're like an amputated body part. Do you know what an amputated body part is? It's gross. <laughs> so don't be gross. Engage. Can you imagine if every single person who calls Jesus their savior decided, you know what, from now on I'm not gonna simply sit in a row, from now on I'm not gonna simply consume, from now on I'm not gonna treat this like the temple, I'm gonna engage. Can you imagine what would happen in our cities, our neighborhoods, our communities, and the world? The second term, the second idea that Jesus completely redefined for us is the idea of authority. We talked about this in week one a little bit. That authority from now on is to be exercised for the benefit of the led, not the leaders. Jesus turned the leadership paradigm upside down, completely upside down. Not just for church leaders and nonprofit leaders, but for everyone who names the name of Jesus. One day he's on his way to Jerusalem. He knows they're getting close to the end. He hears behind him his disciples arguing on who's gonna be on his left hand, who's gonna be on his right hand, who's gonna be great in the kingdom of heaven because they figure they're going to Jerusalem for Jesus to you know, take the throne. We're gonna start a kingdom. The closer you are to the king, the better off you are. You travel better, you live better, you drive better, and you eat better. So they're arguing. And Jesus turns around, stops and says, okay, everybody sit down. Everybody sit down, sits them down under a tree. And he says this. He says, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. To which his disciples thought, well, yeah. You just said, we know it, you're right, we know it. So what's, what's your point, Jesus? I mean, that's the point of having authority is so you can tell people what to do. You say, go get me this and go get me that. I'm a big shot. You know, there's Jesus, there's me, there's the rest of you flunkies, okay? So yeah, we know how it works. Why do you think we're back there arguing over who's gonna be closest to you when you establish your kingdom? We know how authority works. The person who's leading is above the person who's led. So you wanna get to the top of the pyramid so you have all the advantages. We know how it works. Jesus said, look at me, look, look. Not so with you. Not, not in my kingdom, not in my movement, not in my ecclesias. When you gather in my name, don't you dare leverage your authority for your benefit. That's not how it works anymore. Instead, he said, this is so powerful. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. The word servant actually means courier. You wanna be great, then you're the courier for everybody that, you know, that works for you, serves you, and helps you. And in case they didn't, you know, if that word wasn't strong enough, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, your purchased property. That is, if you wanna be over, you gotta be to learn to be under. If you wanna be great in the kingdom of heaven, if you wanna be great in the church, if you wanna be great for my, by my definition of great, then you serve the people around you. And then, as we said in week three, just in case they missed it, when they got to Jerusalem, they gathered in the, uh, uh, the upper room, he took off his outer robe, put a towel around his waist, they were all freaking out and so uncomfortable, awkward, awkward moment and he washed their feet and they resisted and there was eye contact and it was so strange and then he put his outer robe back on 
And he says, now I want you to do that for each other. Here's what he said. He's talking to you and he's talking to me. He says, I have set for you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant, that's you guys, that's me, that's us. No servant is greater than his master, that's Jesus. Which means, if at whatever point in your life as a Christian, you become a big shot, that just means you are responsible for washing more feet. It means that wherever you are in your life, and I'm not talking about church world, if you have any kind of authority, if you run, if you run a business, if you oversee a department, a division, if you have two employees, if you have two direct reports, or if you have 200 or 2,000 direct reports, that your responsibility as a Jesus follower is to figure out how to leverage what you have for their benefit, not the other way around. What if we just got that right? Let me tell you what would happen. Everybody would want to work for a Christian. They would. Now, I don't believe the Jesus thing, but oh my gosh, that, she is unbelievable. I feel like she has my best interest in mind. Why are you this way? Because I'm a Christian and I'm supposed to do for you what my heavenly father did for me. And I believe, you don't have to believe this, you know, we talk about it outside of works so and we don't get any trouble, but here's the bottom line, okay? I believe that God sent his son to submit himself to me for my benefit. And now he's asked me to do the same for everyone I'm ever eyeball to eyeball with. That's why I lead the way I do at work, in our department, our division, our company. It's not about me. I wanna make it about you. What if we just did that? And then here's, I can't even exaggerate the emotion around what Jesus said about marriage. I, there's weak, because of our culture, because we live in the West, because of the United States, but I'm telling you, in the first century, this, this made his disciples think twice about following him. Because in a world where women were property, in a world where a woman's voice and a woman's opinion didn't count, it didn't count in court, it didn't count at home, women were traded, women were promised, girls were promised, and tra- in a world where women were just, they were second rate. In a world where the theology supported the idea that men were close to God and women were somewhere second or third or wherever. In a world where baby girls had almost no value, everybody wanted a baby boy. Jesus came along and he said, marriage is characterized by mutual care and submission, no longer male domination. This was a game changer. When Jesus discussed marriage, when Jesus discussed marriage, I'm telling you, he leveled the playing field. In fact, the most, the most uh, amazing, you know, pointed, focused teaching Jesus did on marriage, he didn't even bring it up. Some, some men came to him. Jesus, we've been kind of talking about this marriage thing, so we want your opinion. I mean, everybody knows what Moses said. You know, everybody knows there's women, okay? But hey, if you're like a guy and you're married to a woman and she gets a little bit less, you know, she's not hot enough and she's too crazy, you know, it's like she's kind of sliding, you know, and you're not really happy with your wife, you know, is that how, what are the rules, what are the laws for getting rid of your wife so you can get a new wife? Jesus, how, how do you suggest we go about getting rid of our wives and getting new wives? I don't know what Jesus thought. I don't know what he said immediately, but I know what I think he thought. You really don't want to know. In fact, I'm gonna let you read it for yourself. When Jesus finished teaching about divorce and remarriage and about the status of women in marriage and the status of men, when Jesus finished his talk on marriage, if there's any doubt about how extreme it was, the best way to know what he meant by what he said is to listen to how his audience responded. 
Because here we are 2,000 years later and we do exactly what we learned from the Reformation. We pick and choose and this word means this and this word means that. And you know, over here Paul said, we compare Paul to Jesus as if they contradict and then it gets all broad and confusing. Next thing you know, we don't know what it meant because you know, we're all lost in the text. But when Jesus finished teaching about men and women in marriage, it was so new it was so ground shaking, it was such new territory. Here's how his disciples who were standing there and heard what he said and understood what he said better than we will ever understand what he said. Here was their response to what Jesus said when he finished answering the men about the women. The disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. Because when Jesus finished talking about marriage, ladies, men lost their advantage because Jesus replaced ownership with partnership. And this was ground, I'm telling you ladies, if you understand what Jesus taught about marriage, you should become a Christian for that reason alone. You can get over, figure out the resurrection, die for your sin thing later, I'm telling you. Jesus in the first century elevated the status of women. It was mind boggling. So years later, the apostle Paul comes along and he's trying to explain to these Gentiles, these non-Jewish people who don't have Moses as a, you know, to bank shot their questions off of. He's trying to explain to them what it means to have a Christian marriage. And he makes this statement that men have put on a banner and you know, marched around forever in conservative Christians. He makes this statement, the wives submit to your husbands. And oh my gosh, men love that verse, right? It's like, you gotta submit, says right here in the text. And all of a sudden we're back to sola scriptura. The word of God is authoritative. It says right here in the authoritative word of God, wives submit to their husbands, there. So every once in a while, you know, a man will bring that up. It's been a long time because I don't do counseling anymore because I'm terrible at it. But, you know, years ago when I thought I could help people, you know, one-on-one, you know. And some men would say, it says right here, it says right here. And I'm like, hey, hey, let me ask you a question. What's the first word in the sentence? Wives. So who's that written to? Wives. I said, well, mind your own business. I'm not even talking to you. <laughs> That's why nobody comes to me for counseling anymore. Anyway. But what the church lost sight of because suddenly we just had such a strange view of the New Testament is that when Paul begins his discussion on marriage, he doesn't begin with wives submit to your husbands. He takes that very same Greek word submit and he says this, this is the opening of the conversation. Submit to, let's say this together. Submit to who? Out of reverence for who? And in this moment, the Apostle Paul says, let me explain Christian marriage. Christian marriage is about asking the question, how did God through Christ treat me and how can I reflect that toward the person I'm married to? You submit to one another. And then he says, so wives, you submit to your husbands out of reverence for Christ. And husbands, you have a harder job. You have to give up your life, lay down your life for the sake of what's best for your wife. So Christian marriage, I mean, this is, this is staggering. This is a complete departure. This is brand new. Christian marriage is a submission competition. That's what it is. The key to a great marriage is the word defer. I want you to go. No, I want you to go. No, I want, you, no, I want what's best for you, but we did what's best for me last time. I know I want to have a two for, I want to do what's best for you. I know, but it's your turn. But, I, but I'll do it. No, you do it. I'll do it. But you, I'm telling you, it's the greatest thing in the world. And then when Sandra looks at me and she says, he is not worth submitting to, then she says, but my responsibility isn't to respond in like kind. My responsibility is to do for my husband as God in Christ has done 
for me. And if there's ever a time in our marriage that Sandra isn't worth submitting to, it's never happened, 27 years of marriage, never happened. But if there were, my responsibility, and my, as a Christian, I'm not to respond in like kind. That's what pagans do. That's what people don't believe. That's temple model. That's, says right here, says right here, says right here does. That my responsibility is to love her like Christ loved me. How did he love me? He died for me. What, what, what if we just went home and did that? That would change everything. It's brand new. Here's another word we gotta redefine, spirituality. What is spirituality? Well, spirit, I know this spirit, she's so spiritual. Paul and Jesus are looking at each other like, mm -mm, temple. Here's what spirituality is. Spirituality is determined by how well one loves, not how much one knows. Spirituality is determined in the Jesus model by how well one loves, not how much a person knows. Now, this is all over the New Testament. This is throughout all the teachings of both Jesus and the Apostle Paul and Peter. It's everywhere. In fact, when the Apostle Paul talked about the fruit of the Spirit, you remember this phrase, the fruit of the Spirit? What is the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit that comes from the Spirit. So if a person is spiritual, here's what you'll see, and here's what he says. But the fruit of the Spirit is insight, and knowledge, and understanding of the deeper things of faith and the ability to make people hang on your every word. You're like, what? No, that's what we think, isn't it? She's so spiritual, she has such great insight. No, she's smart, she studied. Oh, he's so godly, he's so spiritual when he stands up and teaches. No, 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 he prepared. That's not spirituality. Spirituality isn't limited to being able to read. Spirituality isn't limited to, you have to you know, whether or not you have access to a Bible. Come on, the New Testament church started with no Bible. They had an Old Testament, most of them never read the Old Testament, especially when, they, when Paul established churches in Gentile areas. Spirituality, the, te the true test of spirituality is how well one loves, so look what he says, you've, you've heard this before. The fruit of the Spirit, that is, a spiritual person emanates love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You don't even have to be able to read for God to emanate and to allow his spirit to produce those things through you. Now look at this list a second, we gotta move on. These are all horizontal, these are not vertical. This isn't about I'm spiritual this way, it's about I'm spiritual this way. They're horizontal, they're external, they're things that people can see and experience. They're sacrificial. This is my favorite one. They're cross-cultural. Red and yellow, black and white, whatever language you speak, whatever nation you're in, whatever, part, whatever group you're a part of, these are cross-cultural and they're unnatural. They're unnatural because the Jesus model is far simpler but it is far more demanding. So never be fooled. Never be fooled by the man or the woman who knows a lot but doesn't love a lot. Never be fooled by the spiritual leader who seems to know a lot and can pitch their voice in such a way that everyone listens and does what they say. That's nothing to do with spirituality. Zero, that's temple thinking. That's powerful personality thinking. Just remember this, Adolf Hitler split the world with a microphone. Never fired a shot, never visited a concentration camp. That's the power of the spoken word. That's the power of a charismatic leader. And the Jesus movement, spirituality is not measured by charisma. It is measured by the fruit 
of the Spirit, which means the most spiritual person you know, maybe the quietest person you know. It may be the person that knows the least about the New Testament, but somehow has captured what it means to do for others as their heavenly Father through Christ has done for them. The last term that we've got to redefine as we think about moving forward and leaving behind the things that have held us back is the word holiness. Holiness in the Jesus movement is about being a part of rather than setting oneself apart from. This is huge. I thought about spending our entire time today on this one idea. That in the Jesus movement, holiness is no longer about withdrawing from, it is about engaging with. It's not about disengaging from the world. It's not about huddling up. It's not about, oh, don't get you know, pagan, lost people cooties on you. It's not about, let's just go to Christian Bible study and have Christian aerobics and Christian yoga and Christian, 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 and just, you know, hopefully if they become a Christian, they can become part of us. And I don't even, I, we don't even think that way around here. So it's, I don't preach into the choir, but it's about engaging with, not disengaging from. And here's the thing, in the temple model, even and maybe especially the Christian version of the temple model. In the temple model, sacred is equated with separate. In the Jesus model, sacred is engaged, is, is determined by and defined by engagement with. Now here's where we get this, and this is why I wanna spend some time on it. I gotta rush through this. The reason we get confused about this as Christians is the Old Testament. Because the entire Old Testament was for a nation that God had called to be apart from all the surrounding nations. He said, don't eat like those people, don't dress like those people, don't interact with each other like those people, don't marry those people, don't raise your kids like those people. And if any of that pagan stuff becomes part of your culture and your society, get rid of it. Get rid of it, get rid of it. Stone those rebellious children. Stone the adulterous woman. You're to stay, you're to be apart from, holy, set apart, remain pure. Don't engage with those people. You've gotta stay ceremonially clean. And then the Old Testament and the ancient Jews birthed the Messiah. And Jesus came onto the scene. He says, it's a new day. It's brand new. That was the old. This is the new. We are here not to be separate from, but to be a part of and to engage with the people around us. And probably, or perhaps the best illustration of that is when John is writing his gospel, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John and I witness years later, reflecting back on his time with Jesus. He begins his gospel and it's like, well, how do you even start this thing, you know? And those of us who believe the Bible is inspired believe that the Holy Spirit inspired him to write. Get this. The word became icky, gooey, gotta go to the bathroom, saliva, you know, ridden flesh. What? Yes, God became one of us and made his dwelling among us. God decided not to stay separate anymore, but to become not just among us, but one of us. And then when Jesus showed up, he just freaked everybody out because he kept touching unholy things and touching unholy people and embraced disease-ridden people and stood in line for hours and hours and hours and healed one disease-ridden person after time. And all the holy men and all the holy people stood back and thought, how can he be from God and be so engaged with unholy people? And the answer was because this was something brand new. And instead of becoming contaminated by their germs, power went out from him and they were healed. And that is what you've been called to do as a Jesus follower. And that is what I've been called to do 
as a Jesus follower. There's no more disengagement. The whole Old Testament message of disengagement has been overwhelmed by the presence of Jesus who says it's a brand new day. So we should not be surprised that at the end of his time on this earth, he gathers his followers. They think that he's going to establish the kingdom. You know, when is the kingdom coming? Is now the time for the kingdom? You know, the 11 apostles that are rescued, you know, left because Judas freaked out and hung himself. And there's 11 of us like, hey, just... Too bad, hey, it's more for us. So, you know, we're there, it starts hanging around, you know, we're gonna start the kingdom, you know, it's about to start. And they're like, is there gonna be a kingdom? And Jesus says, no. See, you're still thinking like the temple. Well, are we gonna retake Jerusalem? No, you're still thinking like the temple. Are we gonna retake the sacred sites? No, you're still thinking like temple. This is something brand new, so pay attention. Here's what I want you to do. You know, Matthew, write this down. Therefore, I want you to go. What? I want you to split up and go. Well, where are we going? I want you to be, make disciples of all ethnic groups. Oh, but they're not like us. And they don't eat like us. They don't dress like us. They don't talk like us. They don't even believe in the same God as us. Why don't we stay here in Jerusalem and reestablish a kingdom? And Jesus would say, no, that day is over. If you're going to follow me, you must go. And here's my promise and I will be with you always to the very end of the age because now holiness indwells you. When, G, when Luke did his research to write his gospel, he begins his gospel by saying, I've checked it all out to the best of my ability. Here's exactly what happened. Luke says, imagine this, that when Jesus died, that the curtain that separated the holy of holies where God supposedly dwelt, I mean as holy as you could get, this is the epicenter of holiness, that when Jesus was crucified, that, that, tent, that, that curtain was ripped from the top to the bottom as a symbol and as of evidence that God was coming out to engage with people, that holiness was no longer set apart, holiness was about becoming a part for the sake of other people, that God, check this out, this was offensive, that God had left the temple and that God was inhabiting portable temples and that as followers of Jesus, we are to go and represent him everywhere we go. That in the Jesus movement, holy people have dirty hands, not clean hands, that dirty is the new holy, which means the holiest people the holiest people in our churches today, the holiest people in our building today are those precious men and women and teenagers and college students and singles who are down there changing your baby's diapers. <laughs> and as they're doing that, as they're taking care of babies and we think they're babysitting, they're not babysitting. They're getting their hands physically dirty for the sake of the, of the kingdom of God that one day will be present. But in the meantime, we're to represent through our inclusion together and working together and engagement together as the local church. Don't be fooled. Do not be fooled by the wrinkle-free guy with a microphone. This is not holy. Holy people have dirty hands. Never confuse giftedness with holiness. Never confuse giftedness with holiness. Never confuse giftedness with holiness. Just remember, we said this last week, the holiest man in history, the holiest man in history became flesh and died covered in his own blood, died covered in filth and died covered in your sin. So imagine, 
Imagine if we got this right. Imagine if every single Christian, imagine if just all of us in our churches and our communities decided, you know what, no more just sitting in rows, no more soaking it in, no more just consuming, no more coming hoping God gives me a brownie point because I messed up last night but I'm in church today. What if, what if we abandoned all of that thinking? Imagine if we all individually engaged what if every single Christian with any authority in any realm, marketplace, for-profit, not-for-profit, non-profit, what if every single Christian with any authority decided I'm gonna leverage my authority for the sake of the people that God has given me the opportunity to lead? And whatever, what if every husband and wife decided I'm laying down my defenses, I'm laying down my weapons, I'm laying down my accusations, and to the best of my ability by God's grace, I'm gonna learn to treat you the way that God through Christ has treated me. And what if we begin to ask at every turn and every conflict, every time selfishness rises up in us, every time we wanna have our way, every time we know we've done it before, the way we can get by with it, the way we know it's legal, the way that everybody does it. What if at every turn we ask the question, what does love require of me. Not how far can I go, not what can I get by with, not what's legal, not what did I do last time, not is there a verse for it, not does the Bible teach, I've never heard a sermon against, I don't need all that. What if we decided that this is the, this is the one command that everything else is just commentary? What if we decided every single day to simply pause in those moments and ask the question, but what does love require of me? My friends, that brand of Christianity changed the world. And that brand of Christianity can change the world again. And that brand of Christianity should characterize our lives and our churches. And that brand of Christianity will be almost irresistible because that brand of Christianity is brand new. So let's do this. Let's engage. When you're not sure what to say or do, what does love require of you? When you're not sure what to say or do, what does love require of you? And perhaps by God's grace, God would use us to take the church, not simply forward, but to take the church back to what was brand new. I'll see you next week.